0: Hello, and welcome to episode one of my podcast. Stephen Dill Lee of the Confederate Army is subject of my first podcast. Why am I interested in Stephen D. D. Lee? He was the founder and first president of Mississippi State University, my alma mater. Also, he was there at the very beginning, literally the very beginning of the American Civil War and at the end of the war. He was at Fort Sumter in April of 1861 and in North Carolina in April of 1865. Some would say he actually started the American Civil War. He saw significant action in the eastern and western theaters of the war. He was captured and paroled twice over the course of the war, once by Grant and once by Sherman. He was uh, responsible for artillery, cavalry, and infantry during the course of his time in the Confederate Army. After the war, Lee was a leader in the Southern Historical Society, but ironically was the only rebel high-ranking general not to be the subject of a biography until really late in the 20th century. So we haven't really heard a lot about Stephen D. Lee. Although not remembered greatly in history, he was a figure of importance during the Civil War. Later, he was a prominent leader of the New South, a college president, a politician. Some called him benefactor to the common man. And a patron of history, Uh, I have an ancestor who fought with Stephen D. Lee's corps in Atlanta and was wounded there in the Battle of Atlanta. That, which is another reason uh, I wanted to cover Lee in my first podcast. We'll talk more about that here in a bit. He was instrumental in creating and developing the Second. Civil War National Park, which was in Vicksburg, Mississippi, uh, which was Mississippi was uh, was Stephen D. Lee's adopted home state after the war because of his marriage. He did a lot to support the destroyed South after the war, and uh, but he was not an embittered advocate of the lost cause myth that so many of the other uh, Confederate generals were a part of. Thirteen years after the war's end, uh, Lee served as in the Mississippi Senate, and during that time he fought against measures that the legislators there, uh, as in with the other states, were, in, were enacting that would block black people from voting. Uh, during his time in the Mississippi Senate, he also fought for women's suffrage, but unfortunately he lost both arguments as the South was entering a period which we call the Jim Crow era, Besides serving as a state senator in 1878, uh, Lee became president of the Mississippi A&M College, or the Agricultural and Mechanical College, uh, and remained president there until 1899. He took an active, hands-on role uh, in developing the campus, the curriculum, the facilities, the faculty selection. Uh, in fact, he did quite a bit of traveling early on to visit other college campuses in the Midwest and other parts of the country to see how they were doing things, and he ended up adopting a lot of the ideas for uh, Mississippi AM. and He advocated for the teaching of improved agricultural techniques in the South. He advocated for better primary and secondary education, which had been so lacking in the South prior to the war. His legacy Uh, also has a close association with Ulysses S. Grant, which I will try to explore in a little bit more detail in this podcast. He and his family weren't uh, political fire eaters. In fact, um, he was actually drawn to the Union because of his sworn allegiance to the U.S. flag, and he really took that seriously. However, like most men of the time, his allegiance was primarily to his home state of South Carolina, and that had the greatest influence on him. So, Fort Sumter, how did Lee start the Civil War? Well, South Carolina succeeded succeeded first, so he joined what was then the Army of South Carolina, and his first major assignment was serving as aide-de-camp to General P.G.T. Beauregard in Charleston Harbor. His role uh, as Beauregard's aide was to uh, deliver the surrender ultimatum to Union Major Robert Anderson, who had moved the Union garrison out to Fort Sumter. Lee and fellow aide Colonel James Chestnut, who, is, uh, who was husband of the famous diarist Mary Chestnut, they rode out together in a rowboat on the Charleston Harbor to Fort Sumter and delivered the surrender ultimatum to Major Anderson, demanding the capitulation of the fort. Anderson was defiant. And he refused to surrender. So when Lee and Chestnut were back in their rowboat, Lee gave the signal for the Confederates to begin shelling Fort Sumter. Therefore, this was the beginning of the Civil War. Okay, Lee received no formal schooling until he was 11 years old, uh, at which time he was sent off to boarding school. On the basis of this little bit of schooling he did get, somehow Lee was able to get into West Point, which was then, as it is now, one of the most demanding colleges in the country and most difficult to get into. So he had he must have been very smart. Prior to the Civil War, unfortunately if you were not in the planter class, you had very, very little access to public school, an unfortunate fact which led to widespread ignorance and illiteracy on the part of Southern children and adults. In fact, abolitionist Wendell Phillips, when speaking of the American Civil War, said, quote, the war is between the real democracy of the country and the sectional aristocracy, which wields the power of African slavery in one hand and that of the ignorance of the whites in the other, unquote. I don't think he was terribly popular with the Confederate intelligentsia, needless to say. So Lee was in the graduating class at West Point of 1854, the same class as Jeb Stuart and Oliver Howard. He graduated uh, 17th out of 46 cadets in the top third of his class. George H. Thomas, the famous Rock of Chickamauga, was the professor at West Point who perhaps had the greatest effect on Lee. Late in the war, Lee, under John Bell Hood, would later face General Thomas in the Battle of Nashville. His role in the rebel army was similar in the Battle of Nashville to the role that Thomas played uh, in the Battle of Chickamauga, and we'll talk in more detail about that here in a bit. Robert E. Lee, interestingly enough, was the West Point commandant during, the time, uh, during Lee's time at West Point. Now, following graduation, Lee entered the U.S. Army as a lieutenant in the 4th U.S. Artillery. He served for seven years at outposts in Texas, the Dakotas, Florida, and Kansas. He resigned from the Army in February of 1861 after his home state of South Carolina seceded from the Union, but it appears to have been a difficult decision for him. Okay, what did he look like? Stephen D. Lee was tall with dark hair and dark beard. He was handsome. And at seven or six feet tall, he was taller than most men of the time. Also, his bearing was, was such that he stood quite erect and he was known to appear taller than he actually was. He was known for having a very cool head and a business-like efficiency. He was born in Charleston, South Carolina in 1833, so he was one of the youngest generals in the Civil War. He was born to Thomas Lee and Carolyn Allison Lee and raised in Abbey, South Carolina. His father, Thomas, was a doctor, but they were not wealthy uh, and they did not own slaves. He was a distant relative to Robert E. Lee from an earlier time in England. They were both related to Robert Lee, who was the Lord of London in 1602. Okay, so the campaigns of the Peninsula and Antietam. Lee started out in the Eastern Theater commanding artillery brigades for Joseph E. Johnston and Robert E. Lee. He saw action in the Peninsular campaigns and at Second Bull Run, both of which were Confederate victories. His actions at Second Bull Run led Jefferson Davis to remark, quote, I have reason to believe at that great conflict on the Battle of Manassas, that colonel lee served to turn the tide of battle and consummate the victory unquote lee's artillery played a significant role in the battle of antietam which to this day is the bloodiest day in american history his artillery was there at dunker church the cornfield and the west woods and after the morning fight his unit was moved across the battlefield and unlimbered near the town of sharpsburg fighting to repel Burnside's attack across the bridge that became Burnside's namesake. Now, Lee was a man of great personal courage, After moving uh, to the Western Theater, Lee's role turned out to be, besides Chickasaw Bayou Battle, mainly providing rearguard protection for the rebel army during huge defeats at Vicksburg against Grant, Atlanta against Sherman, and then at Nashville against Thomas. One major example was Champion Hill, Champions Hill. During this battle, which was part of the Vicksburg Campaign, Lee was leading the infantry brigade at the furthest left flank of Pemberton's army when Grant's forces flanked the Confederates and routed them in panic back towards Vicksburg. Lee was wounded in the shoulder but stayed in as his brigade held off Union forces long enough to allow most of Pemberton's army to get back to the Big Black River. On several occasions, Lee rallied his various hard-pressed regiments, grabbing their battle flags and leading the men in person. Three horses were shot from under him. Several balls tore through his clothing during the battle. As was uh, his character, Lee's leadership in the battle was such that he was always in the mix with his soldiers. Later, in the Army's retreat from Nashville, Lee was asked to play the role again of rear guard when he was wounded at Spring Hill, but remained on duty and was in charge of protecting the shattered Army of Tennessee as they escaped south from Tennessee into Georgia. Okay, the love of his life. After his Vicksburg capture and release, Lee was stationed in Columbus, Mississippi, and spent many months there as head of the cavalry. During his time, uh, he met a beautiful young girl named Regina Harrison, uh, and they called her Lily. She was quite rich. Her family was wealthy, and they had many farms throughout Mississippi. Lee courted her during uh, this time that he was there in Mississippi, and he fell in love with her. Later, after the Battle of Nashville, while Lee was healing from his wounds that he received at Spring Hill, he was back in Columbus, Mississippi. He and Regina Harrison had been corresponding in the meantime, and so while he was there, they got married. After the surrender of the army in April, he and Regina settled in Mississippi, and and he began life as a farmer. He also dabbled in insurance and other trades. Uh, Regina was a a very real force in his life and encouraged him after the war to become a leader in search of peace and reconciliation following the shattering effects of the war in the South. The Lees had a single child. uh, They had a boy named, named Blewett Harrison Lee. One of the last things that Lee did and perhaps the most enduring legacy was his key role in creating and developing the Vicksburg National Park. In 1899, he resigned uh, from his uh, position as president of Mississippi A&M College, and he became chairman of a team of people who set up the park. He wrote thousands of letters and traveled extensively to lobby for the creation and development of the National Park. And he also played a hands-on role in every aspect of the park's development. He, he stated uh, once during this time that recording and uh, appreciating history was so important to him he was quoted as saying, "Quote, a people who do not cherish their past will never have a future worth recording." Unquote. Now Vicksburg is considered to be Ulysses S. Grant's masterpiece. Why did he why did Lee care so much about it? In the Vicksburg campaign, after Grant finally made it across from Louisiana to Mississippi below Vicksburg across the Mississippi River, He severed his own supply lines, fought and won five battles before finally laying siege to Pemberton's army within the city. Now all this time, Fred Grant, Grant's uh, eldest son, was following the army around on horseback. A fact which uh, sort of amazes me, uh, given that his mom might have protested that a bit if she knew about it. Lee was sent to the Western Theater after Antietam and assigned to General Pemberton's army defending Vicksburg from Grant's forces. Lee then received a promotion to Brigadier General, uh, and soon in in December, he led the Provisional Division that held off William T. Sherman's attack on Chickasaw Bayou. This was the battle where Lee really came into his own. He was on the field adapting his defense to the ever-changing situation through Indian Mound and Chickasaw Bayou and held off five separate attacks by Sherman's army, capturing over four, 300 men in four stands of colors. Since he was the Provisional Division Commander at this time, his troops started calling him, quote, old temporary, unquote. Finally, after the battle for Jackson, Champions Hill, and a siege of six weeks, Lee was captured along with Pemberton and 30,000 Confederates when Vicksburg fell to Grant's army on Independence Day of 1863. They were all immediately paroled and prohibited from participation in future hostilities until they were exchanged. At this point, there was some controversy because a Confederate agent declared that General Lee had been exchanged for a Union general captured at Chancellorsville on July 13, only nine days after his capture. The Union brass saw this as bad faith on the part of the rebels, and many letters were exchanged uh, to the effect... During August and September, the issue was finally put to rest in October, and by this time, Lee had been promoted to Major General. Okay, so what about my ancestor? In the Battle of Atlanta, William Tecumseh Sherman and his juggernaut were pushing and flanking Joseph E. Johnston's Army of Tennessee back, inch by inch, to Atlanta. As they were just getting into the outskirts of town, Jefferson Davis showed up in Atlanta and fired Joseph E. Johnston and installed John Bell Hood as the new commander of the Army of Tennessee. At this point, Lee was promoted to lieutenant general and he took over Hood's old corps. Now, this is where my ancestor comes in. Uh, his name was Elijah Jones. He was in Mabin's uh, Alabama battery, even though he was from Mississippi. He enlisted, enlisted in Alabama for some reason and was with that unit during the Battle of Peachtree Creek just outside of Atlanta. He was wounded in the hip by a miniball, and after convalescing for a period of time, he walked back to Walnut Grove, Mississippi on crutches with a broken hip. Uh, After he got back and convalesced some more, he became an itinerant preacher, uh, and then he uh, uh, had a flock, a pretty large flock, in a church there in Walnut Grove, Mississippi, even though he was illiterate. Now, he could preach, uh, and he could quote scripture, even though he was illiterate, because his wife could read, and, and she would read to him scriptures every night and every day, and he would memorize them from her readings and use those scriptures in her sermons, I think my uh, ancestor, Elijah Jones, was a pretty interesting guy. So when Sherman drove them from Atlanta and they had to move north uh, to threaten Lee's supply lines, uh, they eventually made their way up to uh, the uh, Army of Tennessee, eventually made their way up to Alabama and then into Tennessee. Now, I mentioned that uh, Lee by now was a lieutenant general, which wasn't terribly unusual. There were... I think, 22 lieutenant generals in the Confederate Army by this time, even though in the case of the U.S. Army, there was only one lieutenant general in 1864, and that was, of course, Ulysses S. Grant. He uh, required a, uh, an act of Congress, actually, to bring that rank back into existence because it had not been used since uh, General Washington, who was the last one to have that rank. After Atlanta fell to Sherman, Lee took part in the battles of, with Hood of Franklin, Nashville, and Spring Hill, which we will cover here in just a moment. Now, at Franklin, Tennessee, Lee was again bringing up the rear guard when they approached the town, so only one of his divisions participated in that disastrous attack on the Federals. By the end of the battle, the Federal Army withdrew from the smoldering and terrible, gruesome, terribly gruesome battlefield. Left behind was that small town and a battered Confederate army. Altogether, some 10,000 soldiers became casualties at Franklin in just a few hours' time, uh, and about three-quarters of those were rebels. Six Confederate generals were killed in this battle. When when recollecting the battle years later, one soldier put, put it simply, quote, it was as if the devil had possession of the earth, unquote. Following the Franklin battle, the Army of Tennessee had its last major engagement, the Battle of Nashville, which was an even bigger disaster for John Bell Hood and the Confederates. Lee was, again, tasked with holding the rear guard, which was intended to hold off uh, General Thomas's onslaught so that the remnants of the rebel army could escape to safety. This was when Lee was wounded again at Spring Hill. After marrying Regina... And recovering from his wounds uh, that he got at Spring Hill, Lee rejoined the army, which was now pieced back together by Joseph E. Johnston, who had just been reinstated by Jeff Davis uh, after relieving Hood. The Carolina campaign was the end of the war. uh, And finally, Lee uh, was present when Joseph E. Johnston's army was surrendered to William T. Sherman on Uh, April 26th of 1865, which was right after Lincoln's assassination. This was the end of the Civil War. So what about the connection between Lee and Grant? Well, Lee's son, Blewett Harrison Lee, was in the first Mississippi A&M graduating class. And he went on to receive further degrees in Virginia and at Harvard Law Blewett moved to Chicago, where he taught law at both Northwestern and at the University of Chicago, and he also served as chief legal counsel for the Illinois Central Railroad. At some point along the way, Blewett and Fred Grant, U.S. Grant's eldest son, became close friends over the years. Now, in 1908, Stephen Dill Lee died after a long life of service following the war. In 1909, his statue was dedicated at Vicksburg National Park. The keynote speaker at the dedication of the statue was none other than Fred Grant at the request of his close friend, Blewett Lee. A few years later, at Grant's 95th birthday celebration in Galena, Illinois, Blewett Lee reciprocated and was the keynote speaker at this event. The university that Lee founded in Mississippi in 1878 is now home, believe it or not, to the presidential library of Ulysses S. Grant. Now, Lee's record as a first-rate general was exceeded only by his efforts for his new home state and for the South as a whole after the war. Lee was a man of his times, and he had many faults, the faults of his class, but he labored to help the region— and he left it better because of his efforts. Now tune in to episode two of my podcast, in which I will discuss Union General Oliver Otis Howard.